You're listening to Influx Collective, the podcast, Walking Amongst the Rubble, UndocuQueer Pride. I'm learning to let my sorrow uh, fall apart. I take pride in being a survivor. I hate the American dream. <laughs> my name is Corey Brabby Rudd, and I'm one of your co hosts. And I'm your other host, Diana Gutierrez. We started as a queer poetry reading series, uh, but basically our mission is to connect LA-based poets, promote queer events, and provide a space and a platform for queer creators and queer content. And Influx is a place for audience members to hear stories that reflect their own and for performers to find an audience that understands. Supported programming at Patreon. Uh, we are at patreon.com slash Influx Collective without an E. We're here with Marina Benzon. It's really cool that she performed with us like some two years ago. And I remember meeting her. Was it exactly at Beyond Baroque? Yes. If I'm not mistaken. Yes. Cool. Um, And I remember really liking your energy and uh, your poetry and was thinking, okay, like, were you doing improv at the time? Yeah. uh, So I do a lot of things. Uh, I do improv comedy and I do sketch comedy. I'm also an actor, which is an unfortunate thing to be in Los Angeles. But yeah, I do a lot of performance. Yes. I remember like thinking about that and was like, need to link up with her because I'm also thinking about doing some stand up. So I would love to join some spaces. So if you have any recommendations, we'll talk about that after. Hell Yes, of course. Let me know. I have a lot of friends who do stand up and they're it's slowly opening back up now. So if you want to test some things out, let me know. I'll find you a place. (laughs) Nice. Nice. I'm going to leave it up to you to introduce yourself. And and then after that, we can start asking questions. Oh, for sure. Uh, So hi, guys. My name is Marina Benzon. I am a poet actor and a content creator based in Los Angeles, originally from San Francisco State. Oh, whoops, not San Francisco State. That's the school I went to, but there you go. Uh, I identify as a uh, queer, first-generation, Filipino-Japanese-American. Awesome. And and we're here with our co-anchor, Corey Brappy-Rudd, as well. I'm Diana Gutierrez. And I am the only L.A. native here, (laughs) Um, but it's okay. I love the Bay Area. It's a really awesome space. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm excited. I I saw that you guys were doing this and I was like, I should jump on because I feel like uh, you, your group has been the one that has like I stopped doing poetry after college and then I became a little bit more into the idea of coming back to it. And then I did the reading with you guys. And then I just started hitting the ground running in terms of writing. So I'm like, Oh, this is very full circle. I I must come back. I must inquire. Yeah. I actually didn't know that you were like undocumented. I knew you were queer. Oh, I'm not undocumented. My parents uh, were. Hmm. So uh, when did you, cause okay, I'm interested in this because I, this is like kind of related, but also not, but I, I grew up in a queer family, right? So my parents are lesbian. And so sometimes lucky. I know, I know now it's like, <gasps> like yeah, oh, it's, you're so lucky. <laughs> yeah. I, there definitely was a lot of really cool things about having queer parents. But one of the things I think about a lot is that, um, sometimes I feel like my parents make me more queer than like my own identity does just because like growing up in that space where you're like as such a young kid having to deal with like fear or like rejection or or things like that yeah yeah so I guess I would just be interested to hear like if you could talk a little bit about my yeah, like and how you feel connected to the community here's the thing I don't feel fully like an American and I don't feel fully like a Filipino I'm un- I'm uh, sort of in a weird place where I'm at the intersections of both and neither will fully claim me. Like I could be American. That's a, I, my chat book actually is the whole, my whole thing is about like uh, being between two identities and trying to, to claim one as my own, but understanding that both have like very strong influences on who I am, how I interact with people, like how I identify myself. However, like in terms of like a community, I don't confidently, unfortunately feel like 
like America will ever, ever claim. I mean, especially now. And when I go back to the Philippines and I see my cousins and I see family, they will always recognize me as American and they will never see me as Filipino. Um, so I'm in a weird place where I, my family, my parents uh, are bilingual. So they speak Tagalog and they speak English and I understand Tagalog because of them. But my sister, who's a little bit younger than I does not. So she's a little bit more Americanized than I am. Uh, and it, it was one of those things like they made it a point for us not to learn Tagalog because they didn't want us to have a difficult time finding a job. So it's sort of a weird place. If I don't speak Tagalog, I'm not really Filipino. But if I, I look this way, I'm not really American. Do you like I do you identify as like culturally undocumented as well like if your parents had that experience you kind of like carry on with them like the 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 fright of um being deported or their or your parents being deported like i don't know if you read diane guerrero's book she is documented and her parents were deported when she was like around 13 or so and before then, even though she was the only like because she was the only citizen in her family, she always carried this like fear that her parents weren't going to be there the next day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a similar ish upbringing. Most of my like aunts and uncles that are here in California are all undocumented or they're on their way to getting a green card. Uh, my both of my parents my dad is from Japan and my mom is from Philippines. They were undocumented when they came here for a really long time. They were married to other people. Um, and then they had me, but I was the only citizen before my sister came, obviously, until like everything sort of got finalized. This podcast is brought to you by the City of West Hollywood's One City, One Pride LGBTQ Arts Festival. Each year, the City of West Hollywood celebrates Pride with its One City, One Pride LGBT Arts Festival, which runs from Harvey Milk Day, May 22nd through the end of June Pride Month. What drew you into poetry? Uh, well, it was sort of like a gradual thing for me. I like did poetry classes when I was a kid. Obviously, when you're in fourth grade, and you have to read like a couple classic poets when you're little. And then you, you just think nothing of it. And then you become a brooding teenager and you have all these like feelings and you you can't talk to anyone and you're like dressing like Avril Lavigne and you, you don't you hate your parents and uh poetry when I was a kid or when I became a teenager just became like an escape route a beautiful escape route and I thought nothing of it um until I got to college and I got involved with the Filipino American Collegiate Endeavor which is this huge student conglomerate for Filipino Americans and they were so welcoming in terms of like being creative, being active in the community and knowing your history and knowing what it's like for, you know, veteranos and first generation and, you know, immigrants. So I think in that space, I was able to create and I felt more, more confident in myself and my identity. And I started writing poetry there. Uh, I wrote a, a lot about what made me angry, some displaced feelings, and it sort of has evolved. I mean, much like anything, right? Uh, as an artist, as a poet, as an actor, you evolve and so does your work. And I think in time, that slowly started happening. After college, I moved out here and I kind of just like stopped completely because I was like, I'm, I'm just going to focus on comedy. I'm just going to focus on auditions and, and screenwriting and... I still wrote here and there and my relationship to poetry is still there, but sort of thinning out. And then I, I actually came across you guys on Instagram and you have this great platform for uplifting and elevating uh, queer poets. And I was like, what an amazing sort of space. Like it, it is one thing to be queer in any creative space, but to be queer and a poet is a whole other realm that I was excited to be a part of. Reached out to you and you guys were my first open mic after like six years. And I remember being there and being terrified and nervous and everyone was really like cool and like 
like very poety and I was just like this frumpy little kid that was just like I used to do poetry and then I stopped uh, and then since I read with you guys, I had such a great experience with you. And then I had a great experience with your audience and in that space that I just sort of hit the ground running again. I, I think you guys are a part of my, my story of like, I don't know, feeling reinvigorated to, to write and to feel refreshed. And I was coming into terms with my sexuality of obviously loving women. And so I, I wrote about everything I was feeling and. Yeah, since then, a lot has changed. I got published in a couple magazines online and uh, prints. And I actually have a chapbook out and I'm published by Perennial Press. So a lot has changed. I think you guys are a huge part of that. And uh, right now, my relationship to poetry is great. It's such a huge part of who I am now. And uh, I love this part of myself. Yeah, thank you so much for saying that, like, wow, we were a part of your launching again into poetry and you just like emerging into the queer world here in LA. I think that's definitely our goal is to like help anyone who is like a baby queer be able to find a community where they feel just like not only just accepted because I I mean yes that's one thing but like just like feel in community with other people I think those spaces were really crucial for me in college as well and yeah I, I think that to keep it going is definitely like a crucial goal of ours um and yeah i would like to hear some of the new poetry and um we we have your book millennial dog years um and we're excited to read it now i'm wondering during this pandemic have you been writing also like how has dealing with this pandemic been for your writing process or um performing process Oh, so it feels like that's two different things. Like writing wise, it was incredibly easy in the beginning of all this, um, just because America has sort of been like molting off their skin and taking on a new form. Obviously, we lost a president and we got another president. And there's such an interesting sort of like turmoil that we're going that's going on within our communities out here uh, especially marginalized communities um so i think i've been inspired and angry so it has been influencing my writing quite a bit performance wise it's a little weird like i've been invited to do like virtual open mics and like it's it's a little rough and so i think that's hurt my performance i also feel like i have like like mad puppy dog energy when I go in. Cause I, I haven't like talked to anyone in person except for my girlfriend. So I'm always out here like, hi, what's your name? What are you doing? And I can feel people just like uh, cringing around me. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I haven't spoke to anybody. So performance wise, it feels so weird. Right. That's one of been one of the things that we've been struggling with at Influx is like, how do we navigate the in-person closures and like, how do we continue to create space without relying on like some of these platforms that are honestly like for me, I get really exhausted sometimes by Zoom stuff. The connection doesn't feel the same. Yeah, that's been one of the things we've been struggling with a lot is like, how do we navigate this space? This has been one of the ideas we had in terms of trying to still like engage with people on the audience in terms of like creating something that maybe feels a little bit yeah different than like a zoom setup yeah it's difficult and it's hard to work your way around it because you really don't have another option other than zooming and then people are working from home and they're having zoom meetings so obviously there's a little bit of like zoom exhaustion and i i mean i get it and i applaud you guys for for making an effort and i think the podcast is a great idea I, I thought that it's such a cool way to navigate through. Awesome. Thank you. I mean, while we're talking about it, we can ask you one of the things we've been asking everybody who comes on this podcast is is about the title of the podcast. So we've been really curious to hear people's responses to like, what does walking amongst the rubble mean to you? You know what I first when I first read that, the first thing I thought, I don't know why, but I thought like walking on hot coals for some reason. and. I mean, it's not at all what the thing, what the title is, but in my head, I was like, that's like walking on hot coal. 
And I think in that it's, it's sort of beautiful, right? Um, as poets, as artists, you're constantly having to move out of your comfort zone. You're going to have to be uncomfortable and have to navigate through. So, I mean, what's more uncomfortable than walking on hot coals, right? It's doable. It's difficult to do, but it's something that can be done with conviction and confidence. And I, I think that's, I mean, I know your group very well. I know your organization. So I'm like, that feels very in line with you guys. So when it dawned on me, I'm like, oh, it's like walking on hot coals. Like, yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. So almost like you're walking through kind of like the thick of it or something like that. Like the, the emotional, like intensity of walking Hell, on coals. Yeah. Cool. Hell yeah. Especially now. I mean, this is such a fantastic, scary time to be alive and to be a woman of color or to be a queer woman of color and to have all these intersections. Like it's so strange being alive right now in America. And I'm, I'm guessing that when you were a kid, because after reading your some of your poems, you were also just like feeling walking through cool in some way. I'm, I'm wondering, is that how you were feeling when you were writing about whiteness or like experiencing whiteness in, in your in your family circle and um, places that you just ventured into? Oh, I know what poem you're pertaining to. Um, yes, I I feel like. It wasn't when I was a child. This wasn't something that was top of mind. Obviously, when you're a kid, you're sort of like bullshitting around, playing in the playground, scraping your knee and like trying to down some otter pops. But as soon as I got a little older and I started reflecting back on my childhood, there were there were a lot of things that um, sort of irked me in a weird way, like certain comments. Do you know when you go to a party and you talk to somebody and you have like a little interaction with them? And for some reason, this interaction just stuck with you when you're in the shower that same night, like going to bed. You're just like, I don't know why this is bothering me. It felt exactly the same way. I felt like, um, you know, with this poem, I think that you're referring to is auntie is marrying a white man. There were so many draw. I guess parallels between that interaction um, and sort of its relation to colonization, gentrification, cultural appropriation. So it felt like this gave me time to reflect back and it really has sort of irked me and sat with me and, and has given me the opportunity to like dive into it in the form of poetry. I hope that answers your question because halfway through my answer I was like I'm not 100% sure what the question is but I think I know what poem she's talking about. Would you like to talk about that poem more or like I would love to hear it if you can read it. Yeah um, yeah. why don't I read it and then we can sort of dive into it right after Auntie is marrying a white man. Auntie is marrying a white man. A white man named Tom or John or Joe oh how my auntie's face is flushed with pride. How her smile has eaten up half her face until the cracks of her wrinkles play hopscotch across the table between aluminum trays of pancet and lechon. She tells my mom, Marisol, I never felt more secure now that I married him. Him meaning privilege. Him meaning money. Him meaning American. Auntie is marrying a white man. Auntie is marrying a white man. A white man named Steve or Frank or Ben Oh, how the white man politely smiles in his blue polo shirt and khaki pants. How his discomfort is oddly pronounced in his uncertain smile when he tries his hand at the galog. He says, you know, Filipinos are considered Pacific Islanders, not Orientals. Oriental meaning Asian. Orientals meaning exotic. Orientals meaning foreign. Auntie is marrying a white man. A white man named Mark or Jim or Yellow Fever. Oh, how Yellow Fever loves to keep you inebriated by your ill-suited fantasies. How subservient women match perfectly with your ironic Hawaiian shirt and Ford Explorer. Yellow Fever says, teach me how to say I love you in Tagalog. Teach me meaning give me. Teach me meaning appropriate. Teach me meaning genderfy. Auntie is marrying a white man. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. What was that experience that like in terms of craft, what was it like for you to write about your both identities of being like Filipino American and Japanese American and diving into what that means for you? I mean, I want to say that it felt vulnerable, but it felt so easy to do. And it felt like I at first had to censor myself. I'm like, well, I, I can't say that. That's going to offend some people. But I sort of came to a point where I was like, 
I'm not writing for anyone else but myself at the moment. So fuck them. Like it came to a point where I just sort of shed some skin and it felt very easy after that. So crafting like that particular poem, um, I will say that that uh, like auntie marrying a white man in Filipino families is a normal thing that does happen. A lot of aunties will do that. Or a lot of uncles will try to like marry someone um, white. Um, and it's because they are trying to, to, I guess be, I, I think of it this way. They're trying to uh, be more American and how can they prove that they're more American than marrying a white man from America? Uh, so I think that's such a normal, normal trope in any Filipino family. In my Filipino family, I don't have an auntie that's marrying a white man. I do have cousins that are married to white folks. And I am actually in an interracial relationship with a white woman. So I, I want to come at this very delicately, but it was very easy for me to do considering that I had firsthand experience and I understand as much as I can to my ability uh, both sides of this story. And I, I mean, I took this direction, excuse me, let me say that I, I sort of approached it with like, make a choice and run in that direction. And this was the direction I'm like, it's not that it's, um, I guess it could seem sort of hateful, this poem, like, oh, this white man is doing it, but it's more about what the white man represents. Um, so, and I tried to break that down as simply, simply as possible, it's not about like the white man is ruining the Filipino family. It's about like gentrification. It's about, you know, cultural appropriation. It's, it's about all these uncomfortable talks that we've had to have where I have to try to explain to somebody that I'm not going to teach them how to say, I love you in Tagalog, you know? Um, so it, it, this is sort of like my passive aggressive way of like putting this all out there, but it, it felt very easy to do once I was, in the headspace of like, fuck it. Like I'm, I'm not, my poem is not here to hurt anybody. It's not here to uh, like emotionally scar you. It's here because it's here to exist, right? Like anything art needs to exist in any space. It doesn't mean it's for everybody, but this is my way of educating, informing and elevating. Nice. So I definitely can agree on so many levels. As you know, like Corey and I are obviously like in an interracial ma marriage. And so, yeah, there are moments where like I've gotten from a couple of my friends. Oh, OK, you know, you're becoming more white because there is that fear when like you are with a, a white person that like you are becoming more white. However, for me, it was also just like the symbolism of whiteness is what what I really wanted to deconstruct. And that's what Corey and I do in our relationship. We deconstruct the hell out of that. We tear it apart. We constantly talk about what's going on with the U.S. and how it impacts other countries. So I, I definitely think that like we can have white allies. Um, and with that being said, it's really important also to address whiteness as a concept in, in how it affects us and POC uh, Black people in this country. And then also in terms of crafting and writing, when, okay, you were saying that this, this poem was, uh, when you were writing it, it was about uh, a cousin? It wasn't about like a particular cousin. This is actually just about every Filipino trope. Yeah. It's like this ongoing thing that always happens. Like there's always a Filipino auntie that is marrying a white man. Um, I, now that I'm in an interracial relationship, like I, I mean, you do get different sides of every coin. I love that you talked about like, Oh, is this being like too white? And I, I think it just has to be this beautiful intersection of coming together in a way that uh, unifies you guys in a way that you can embrace and celebrate each other's culture. I mean, I have my girlfriend, eat adobo with me. I've had her like, she's very immersed in like Filipino culture. My family has taught her Tagalog. Like, uh, and I think that's sort of important. It has to kind of go both ways, you know? And I, I want that to be a little bit more transparent and obviously the things that I write as well. 
<laughs> one of the things that I one of the things that I noticed, it seems like it, it definitely in this poem and then in some of the other ones too, I, I'm noticing like this this effort and this um this push towards kind of like almost rewriting but but more like re-examining the past um like with with a with almost like an adult lens or like with a critical lens and and kind of like going back and being like oh this is like what was actually happening with my body when i was 12 versus like what i thought was happening and that was one thing that i found really interesting and, and exciting about your work and i was i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like how poetry or how art functions maybe at large to to maybe heal yeah. those wounds um in no way am i a therapist but <laughs> I will say that re-examining really hard moments in my life has sort of given me a little bit of closure. I'm not going to say that this works for everybody. This has worked for me in poetry. It has such an amazing range of just no holds bars. Do what you feel, write how you feel, be unapologetic about it. And, you know, when I was writing some of like that particular poem 12, I wrote because that was such a titular time in my life. And I was really at the crossroads of like, Oh, that is a horn. Sorry. We might have to edit that out. Um, so sorry. Now I'm, I'm thrown off, but sorry to go back. It has given me the opportunity to re-examine sort of harder moments in my life. Um, and particular moments where it's like I'm coming of age from girl to teen to teen to adult. And when you're a kid and you're going through it, no one ever tells you how to, to like hold that sort of anxiety or hold that sort of insecurities or how to, to mold it so it could work for you in that moment. You learn that when you get older. And at that time, it's I mean, at this point, it feels like it's a little too late. So for me, this sort of gave me the opportunity to to look at my past with different lenses, to kind of look at it with like rose tinted lenses for a second and to like give myself a little bit of closure and to embrace the, you know, the 12 year old girl that I was who was scared and nervous and once gave herself a really bad haircut and, and, and take some ownership, I think. And I for me personally, that's usually how I take ownership is either through through a lot of comedy or through some poetry, which is very two different extremes. But I think it has given me a lot of like space to, to, to you know, own it. This episode is brought to you by the California Institute of the Arts Alumni Council. CalArts has set the pace for educating professional artists since 1970. It offers rigorous undergraduate and graduate degree programs through its six schools, art, critical studies, dance, film and video, music, and theater. Have, has it, have any of your family members like read your poetry or have like and or have opinions about your poetry? Yeah, they have opinions. <laughs> um, so my mom and, and my dad have been very supportive. Uh, my dad is really impressed and he likes one poem of all of them. And that's fine because uh, one of them is like half Tagalog or partly Tagalog. So he loves that one. My mom has been very supportive, but she has told me she will not share it with her church friends because it gets a little it crosses the line a little bit. In no way is my mom like homophobic. She loves having like a gay daughter. In fact, she is arguably a little bit more gay now. Um so, um, so I feel like it's just her relationship with some of her friends and her church friends have been like, they're not so, uh, welcoming when it comes to my chat book, because I talk about my political views. I talk about my position as a queer woman of color. Um, and, and sometimes hearing another person's discomfort doesn't really open a lot of people's eyes just closes some fists which sucks um some of my cousins who are around my age have been incredibly supportive um and and yeah it's mainly my parents and my cousins that have been like this is dope keep going 
which is great because this could go south very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's I, it sounds like too your book was extremely successful. I think we read somewhere that it it sold out on the first printing. Yeah, that was so weird. I will tell you, like they didn't like print thousands. So let me clarify: they printed like a hundred or something like that, and um. They they ended up selling it out in in a month and a half or two months, which was really cool. So now this is the second round of of books. So it's a little wild. I don't. It's really nice, but also really weird. Like it's one of those things. Like I don't. What do you do with your hands now? Like it just feels awkward. <sighs> wow. I I guess okay. One of the questions I have about um for folks that have that have published is I know that the publishing industry in general, it's kind of like notorious and infamous for not serving marginalized writers. Um, and so I'm curious how you navigated the publishing industry. I'll be honest with a little bit of grace, just because I was working with perennial press and they are amazing. I, I don't ever submit myself to groups that don't open their doors for marginalized groups or disenfranchised communities and perennial press. If you guys ever take a look at them, they are all about celebrating every kind of person, however you identify. So they were very kind in giving me a lot of creative control and really elevating my work. Um, and they really just celebrated the fact that, you know, yes, you're gay. Yes, you're a person of color. Yes, you're a woman. How, how, how can we help you get your work out? And I, I feel so fortunate to have come across them and to have them a part of my journey and my career, much like how I feel about you guys. <laughs> so I'm like, Oh, thank God. Um, you know, you're, I think in life, you, you cross paths with the right people at the right time. And I feel like with perennial press, with influx, it just happened so beautifully and so seamlessly that it has only made me a stronger writer, stronger performer, and makes me want to work harder. So with them, I think it's a little easier for me, from my perspective. But honestly, if, if this had been a different publishing group, I, I think I would have had an incredible difficult time. Mm -hmm. I think it really speaks to like how important it is to have spaces where we're centered and celebrated because it just makes such a huge difference in terms of like how it feels to work with a press or how it feels to get on stage when you know that people love and are passionate about and care about your work. Exactly. It's incredible to have spaces, but also spaces driven by people of that same community. I mean, it, I mean, it's the same thing with Hollywood. You can't have like uh, an Asian American movie written by a white man, right? You can't, you just can't do that. Like our narratives can't be built from someone else's perspective. It has to come from the source. And I think that's what's so amazing about Influx. And that's what's so amazing about Perennial Press is that you have a great understanding for what your poets need and where they're coming from and how we can get their work across. So I think that's why, in part, I got away with the name Millennial Dog Eater, because that could be sort of controversial for other places. And they're like, that's a dope title. Fuck yes. Run. Run in that direction. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the process of picking that title? Because it's it's incredibly, as soon as you hear it, I, at least like for me, I was like, oh, shit, this is going to talk about some real shit. Like, it's it's a powerful title. Yeah, I don't want to say that like I was just brainstorming one day in my shower. I just sort of had that name in the back of my head for a really long time. And I never thought like, this is going to be the name of my book one day. I just like really loved that title just because I was coming into terms. Like I came up with that title maybe four or five years ago when someone was in office and we were all being sort of put into categories based on your age, based on your ethnicity. And I was like, yeah, I'm a millennial and I'm a dog eater. So let's utilize that slur and utilize what your idea of me is and put it together. And I really loved it. And then I pitched it and they were like, for sure, let's do it. And then from there, I ended up feeling really like enthused about the title still that I wrote a poem about it after we got the name across. So the title came first and then the 
poem, Millennial Dog Eater, was sort of secondary. Wow. I'm really excited to hear that poem. Can we? Yeah, sure. I can find that one very quickly because it's the very last poem. Millennial Dog Eater. Say it. It's uncomfortable to taste, unfitted in its own skin, tender in its bruises, deafening from its edge staccatos, prickly in your mouth. Say it. It used to give them a wooden soapbox for their sermons. It used to bend the frail bones of my ancestors so they can fit in it. It used to give them comfort. It used to give us nightmares. Say it. Because Becky with the good hair wants to know if my auntie owns a salon. Because Karen is worried that I'll cook and eat her dog. Because America doesn't make space for queer brown women anyways. Say it. Millennial, because I grew up with the internet. Dog eater, because they couldn't pronounce Filipino. Say it. Millennial dog eater. Nice. You have like such a power in in your presentation of just like striking the whole like letting someone just like feel the intensity of that time and place in which you wrote that. Yeah, it's really cool. Thank you. It's also loosely based from a book I loved by Jessica Hagerdorn called Dog Eaters. Um, it's, it's an antiquated term to be honest. So it's a little back in the day. Uh, but it is a term that's been used not just for Filipinos, but it's been used for mainly Asian Americans or Asians. I'm sorry. Mm. Uh, It's so like creepy to just like find out how many derogatory names there are for like POC groups. Uh, I want to ask about like uh, your relationship to um, to just like coming to America or not you coming to America, but like your family coming here. And what uh, as we talked about um, uh, behind the scenes, like what what was that relationship with um, them getting used to the United States and them getting used to, um, I guess, like Americanness? For sure. Um, Well, my parents immigrated from the Philippines and Japan. Uh, My mom, when she was in her 20s and my dad, when I think he was in his teen years and they had been having a difficult time getting their green cards when they came here Um, with my parents having me. And now I'm a natural born citizen of the United States. They they had a difficult time period. Um, With that being said, they didn't speak English when they came here, but they had to like learn and they had to get rid of their accent. So they would have an opportunity for a job, Um, which has later influenced how I grew up and how my sister grew up is I don't speak Tagalog, unfortunately, and neither does my sister. And we, I don't have an accent. Um, but I did grow up in like a bilingual house and I understand Tagalog. So it's this weird clashing of identities and and coming together in a beautiful sort of clashy sort of way. And I didn't, it's like one of those things again, where like, you don't think about it when you're in it. And then when you get a little older and you, you sort of reflect back how scary it sort of was. Um, I remember my parents, my dad specifically sitting me down when I was like seven or eight when I was sort of able to like conceptualize things and him explaining to me that my life was going to be a little bit difficult when I got older, because one, I'm Asian two, I'm a woman. And I was so thrown by that. And I was like, well, no, cause blah, 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 blah. And I grew up thinking I have the same opportunities as everybody else. I mean, of course I thought that because when you're seven or eight, you don't really conceptualize race and, and the intersections of that. You're thinking that you have this, like you can live the same life as the characters on friends, like that opportunity is available for you. And then when I got older, I started really conversating with my mom and my dad about their upbringings and how they transitioned from coming from a different country completely to America. And that it's not all rainbows and butterflies and shit. Um, So sorry, I got a text. It's not all rainbows and butterflies and shit. It's about, it's, it's a lot of reexamining how you're being perceived by other people. You know, if my parents, they made it a point not to speak the Gallup to each other in public because they didn't want to get scrutinized. I mean, obviously you can't hide how you are presented. Um, 
when I went to school, I remember asking my parents to get me Lunchables instead of making me Filipino food because Filipino food like sort of looked funny and it tasted great, but like it looks funny to other kids. And I mean, that's another sort of thing you have to reexamine is that the way that you're brought up in a household that is primarily immigrant, um, sort of informs how you interact with the rest of the world. And I haven't really taken a moment to look at it until now. I mean, until you get older, right? I know they had a really difficult time when they came here. And I I don't think I made it easier (laughs) when I was a kid, just running around like causing shit. Yeah, it's so crazy how like not only do parents have to navigate just like the whole world of the United States and like U.S. politics and taxes and perhaps like talking with their relatives, but also just like having to deal with us becoming a mature adult. And that in and out of itself is like a whole whole experience that I feel like is overlooked sometimes. And I, I definitely think that it's really important to write about that. And I'm really happy that you did with the poem um, 12. And I'm wondering when um, you're thinking about like race and concepts, like how do you, do you like navigate those intersections like of being a Filipino American and being like a, sorry, a Japanese American uh, lightly? Or is it something that has like gradually um, become like, um, natural for you. I'm, I'm curious. I think it started becoming natural for me in college, um, because it felt like sort of gross and dirty to be like, I'm Filipino. But then if you're in a space for people who are like, I look like you, I, I want to celebrate you. I want to embrace you and your identity. I think, that's when I started feeling a little bit more confident and I felt like I could fit in my skin. Uh, I guess it's sort of gross to say. No, it's okay. It's okay. I mostly just like a part of the interview process is really strange because like you're the one that has to ask questions. And like, sometimes I just like, I'm, I'm such a like person that just like listens and sometimes the questions don't come so easily. And I'm just like, yeah, like I I don't know like I, and and that's why I feel like this uh podcast also is really important that we just like feel our utmost original selves and we like just talk to each other how we would like out in, in an influx meeting or whatnot yeah I'm curious like how do you feel when do you feel creative like when do you feel like you can create something that you're proud of I usually am fueled by like a pure emotion. Like anytime I'm like really angry, I, or really upset or sad or disgruntled or anything that's sort of polarizing for me. I I just, I have to sit down and write. Like if I just write it out, it, whatever I'm feeling is taken out of me and it lives somewhere else. And I feel like that's the easiest way for me to deal with some of my feelings. And sometimes it's like, you write stuff and it's not great, but it's at least out of my system. And at least it exists somewhere else that's outside of my headspace. And other times I write something and I'm like, well, yeah, I remember that feeling. I want to continue to think about that feeling. I want to think about how that still makes me feel. And then sometimes it'll be like a month or two months after I have written like a little like four line thing. And I'm like, well, I feel like I can sort of expound on that. And it takes me a second to be like, that was a fantastic little piece of, you know, poetry that I could still keep stretching out. And sometimes it feels like this is done. (laughs) So I wonder if you could talk maybe a little bit about either what you're working on right now or what is like really exciting to you that you're, you're just inspired by right now. Yeah, for sure. Well, two things. Right now, what I'm inspired by is I have, I'm starting this like docu profile series called Uprisers. I put out one episode. I'm putting out another one in a week or so. But right now, what's been inspiring me is, is 
other people's stories into getting to know other people and their craft. I have a lot of friends who are incredibly talented at what they do. Music, fine arts, voiceover, acting, theater, like stunt work. And I think it's so amazing what they do. And I, I want to know what like fuels them, what drives them, what helps them you know, continue on in this passion. So lately for me, that's been a huge inspiration. Uh, in terms of what I'm working now, I kind of have my hands full with a lot of stuff. Um, obviously millennial dog eater is done and I love that that work is out there, but I am working on another manuscript that is, <laughs> I know. So I feel like some of the poems that came in at the last second are very, very different than some poems I obviously wrote a couple years ago. So I'm feeling that some poems are slowly coming back up, bubbling up and some ideas and concepts are coming into play. And it, this year has been sort of a transformative year where I can take a second to step back and see how things have affected me, how it's affected other people and how it makes me feel to write it. So I am excited about my new manuscript. Is it done? No. Uh, but it is also fusing still my political views, my uh, perspective and point of view as a person of color and being queer. And it has also this uh, another section of my love for movies. Uh, so... I guess. Okay. So let me explain this. I'm writing a handful of poems and I'm dividing them all up in sections. And this section of poem I'm excited about because it takes movies and films that we've seen or, or like TV shows that we've seen. And I, I take a character or I take a moment and then I just write about it. And then it's sort of like this weird practice of empathy and like putting myself in that character's shoes or putting myself in that scene and just sort of figuring out, you know, the different nuances of that. So I wrote a poem about, um, Joe from little women. I wrote about the King of Wakanda. Uh, I wrote about the Glee curse. I don't know if you heard about the very popular show Glee. Uh, yes. Yeah, so it's a musical show off of Fox but they have something called the Glee curse where, uh, unfortunately, like something very scary happens to like a member of their cast every couple years or so. So I was like, oh, I kept thinking, I'm like, this has to be like someone made a deal with the devil for fame. And I started like thinking like, well, let's reexamine like what fame is like to have so much of it and to have all this, this influx of money and, and fans and opportunities, but to have it come at a cost of your life. Uh, so that has really inspired me to like reexamine my relationship to like Hollywood and that industry. So uh, I'm really excited about that just because I think it's a great way to bridge the gap between like anyone who watches film and TV shows and I don't know, likes, likes the big bang theory. I will like, I wrote like half the thing about Sheldon. Like are we, Oh, are we able to like by any chance like hear some of the new stuff? Yes, I let me get my laptop. I can show you the little women one just cuz that one is the one that is probably the most fine-tuned. Yeah. I I loved her character. She had the most realistic scene when she I did watch the show. Um she had the most realistic scene when she had to come out to her grandmother. And her grandmother was like, I, I'm done, like stepping back. It's never gonna, it's unfortunate, but I thought that was so realistic. Like it's not always gonna work out. And just because your hand is on the keyboard, you can write like a good ending. It doesn't mean that that always happens for everyone. Not every person who comes out is going to have like a parade and a welcome mat. Some people get kicked out, you know, and no one ever talks about that. So I thought it was sort of I, sad, but beautiful that her grandmother was had this moment of being like, I don't accept this. So I let me just preface that this is based on uh, Little Women and particularly a line that Joe says, or she has a line about being married or dead. Or I'm sorry, not Joe. Somebody mentions a line about being married or dead. So this poem is titled Married or Dead. Oh, unfaithful day, you've brewed cotton candy skies in the name of love, a distasteful habit. 
What a beautiful lie to humor, so society may dance in its own unforgiving way. The decadence of death seems attractive, but still. Ink stains linger under fingernails, hair has been furiously mismanaged, and the dresses will still be scorched from the night before. To be interesting, to be theatrical, to be uncuffed from a man or a coffin seems romantic, but still. The boy next door peers through the veiled window. He dawdles on and to pray to his youthful vanity and will interest the unconventional one who indulges too fondly into tomfoolery and pen stories. Not the one who pronounces her smile in striking chords. Not the one who wants small things and to feel smaller than other girls. Not the one who loves abruptly and heeds to be a decorative wife, but still. Giving up the world freely is a task brought unto many women before. Marriage remains unfitted to wear. Death remains painfully boring. To be unfitted or painfully boring. What a grand and wicked gamble. Thank you. It's a little rough, but <laughs> it's the it's the one the first one I did where I was just like, I just want to write about the things like the stories that I love. And Little Women is one of them. So I was like, let me write about Joe for a second. No, thank you so much for sharing with us new work. I always feel really honored when people are like willing to share new stuff because I know it's really like you, you're just like still testing out the waters and all that. Yes, it feels nervous. Like I'm like, as I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, I should probably edit this and like do that. So I'm like in my head, I'm like reading, but I'm like, oh, God, I've never practiced this one. Yeah, I've never read this one aloud before. So there's that like little like stint of panic. Mm, totally. Reading aloud helps me edit my work too. Cause I'm like, Oh, there's the error. <laughs> like that, there's where it is. Yeah. <laughs> I do that too. I, like I read like, <laughs> like a robot. I'm like, Oh, unfaithful date. You've brewed cotton. Like I would read that way. My girlfriend hates it. Um, but I'm like, that's the best way, best way for you to edit your work. If you just read it out loud, because you don't want to sound dumb and you know what you want it to sound like. <laughs> this actually so reminds me the other day I was writing something. This was maybe like a month ago, Diana. I don't know if you remember, but I was writing something and I do this. I re I like say what I'm writing while I'm writing it. And so I was like, can I, can I read you something? And she was like, I already heard it. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> Oh, yeah. That's because like when we're in our apartment, um, like Corey just has like a performance um, moment in the living room or she'll have a performance moment in the living room and all the doors are open. So like I'll hear it and I'll be like, oh, that's really cool. And I'll have like commentary at like that moment. And then she'll ask me like an hour later, hey, did you hear my poem? Do you want to hear it? And I'll just be like, I already, yeah, I already heard it. It doesn't mean that like I don't want to hear it. It's just that I, I've heard you in the living room already. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, I just thought it was more funny because it was like clearly I've been like announcing them out loud and I didn't really even notice. <laughs> I know. And it comes to her like, do you want to hear this new thing I'm doing? And she's like, I already know. I already know this new thing. I'm intimately aware. <laughs> yeah. Like you've been screaming it in my face for the last hour, but sure. <laughs> That's something that I've yet to learn that I really want to um, like get on. Um, I, I don't read my work out loud. I actually just like feel it really closely. Yeah. I just like read it to myself and try to see if like all of the emotions that I'm trying to portray are there uh, but I don't know there's something so nerve-wracking about hearing your own voice read your work um I get that which is yeah which is like uh I, I guess like as an actor myself like it's something that I'm really comfortable in acting but like not necessarily in poetry um I think it's yeah yeah so uh, yeah definitely gonna have to explore that yeah no well I get that. It took me a really long time to sort of get used to that too, just because when you're an actor, obviously you know this, you're reading somebody else's work. You're, you're making a choice. You're like following direction. You're sort of underneath a veil of like a facade of a character. But when you're reading your own poetry, it's just like, you're peeling back the onion. I'm like, here's my little core. Like it's so vulnerable. That's, I felt so, at a crossroads when my book came out, my chapbook, because I'm like, this is fantastic. It's out. And I'm like, oh my God, it's out. 
like people are going to read this. People are going to know what I feel and what I think. And I took some poems out just because it felt too um, close to my chest, you know, and then to hear it aloud just feels like another reminder of that. So I totally get it. It's a great way to edit your work. but Yeah. Yeah. It definitely helps with editing a lot, but I wonder like, how do you get for yourself? Like, how do you get to that place where you can feel comfortable, like sharing your poems with the world and even more? I, I feel like there's, it's one thing publishing it because I'm just posting it online, don't really see it. And then there's another thing when I'm like reading it aloud. But um, how do you get to that point where you allow yourself to like, let go of it that way? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I didn't come to that realization until after the fact like once the book was out I was like oh fuck (laughs) oh god the panic ensues um but what has really helped me is that um one I I got a lot of support from people I knew like back in the day either that be from like you know schools or family or you know acquaintances or friends and the fact that they they bought it and they read it and they had very kind things to say about it just made me feel a little bit more comfortable on my skin i and i think that's partly why it feels okay right i mean when you put this out there let's not lie we all want a little bit of validation like i'm putting out this very personal part of myself i want to feel like it's okay to live in the space with you like i want my part my part. I want my, my heart to be out there and for you to see it. And I want it to be okay. Like, I want you to feel like, I don't know. Does that make sense? It is. Yes. And I think because I've had great support and a positive response from people that I'm close to, you know, who know me and they know my character. um, I felt a little bit more okay to just sort of let that fear go. Um, yeah, having I did that support speak, systems huge. Yeah, yeah, I did speak to uh, another poet who was supposed to review my work, but then she couldn't. Um, and I told her like, I am so nervous for this to be out there. She's like, you should just celebrate it. And I was like, what? And I'm like, well, yeah, because I'm looking at it differently. And I'm like, the way that she, because she is very well known she's had she has books out and she tours and i'm like how does she deal with it and she's just like you just celebrate it like you just have to look at it in a different light and i'm like that's such a beautiful and easy way to to handle something like this you know embrace the fact that you're gonna put this part of yourself out there and i think that's really what has helped me that's such a beautiful way to look at it too because sometimes i almost think about it as like i'm doing some type of weird exposure therapy but that way of looking at it just feels so much more just like calming (laughs) yeah like i maybe i'm being like an exhibitionist like what am what am i doing um but i mean it's like anything I mean, I'm, I'm, it's not like I'm going to go run outside in public with my clothes off or anything like that feels very personal, but it, it feels similar to that. You know what I mean? I'm like, here is all of me. I hope you like it. Maybe. Yeah, it's such a it feels like such a risk sometimes that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, can, I can see the comparison between it being like streaking or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say I'm not particularly like. I won't say that I'm like a positive person, but I do always expect consequence from everything I do. Cause I think that's just natural order of things. So I was expecting like, you know, a lot of people won't be happy about my work mm-hmm. or they, they may like just say like distasteful things. So I was sort of expecting that. And the fact that like it has gone the opposite way has really set it up for me. Mm-hmm. I live by this one like mantra, which is like, do your best and expect the worst. <laughs> I So I think that's <laughs> that's stuck in my head. I totally okay, this reminds me because I was like, I think like back in the day, I was super nervous about reading my work, but I also really wanted to do poetry, and those two things were like super conflicting for me, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to start influx. <laughs> um, but so I remember like my therapist being like, Okay, so what happens? Like you read your poem and it bombs. Like it's terrible. It's just a shitty poem. 
And then like, what's going to happen? Like everyone's going to clap and you're going to leave and you'll be fine. And I was like, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but anyways. Uh, yeah, that's completely true. That's completely true. You know? I'm like, I mean, anything, everyone has the common courtesy of being, I, I respect what you did and I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. It may not be for everyone. And I've come to terms with that. I'm like, it's not going to please everybody. But if you like, I came to terms with the fact that like, if I like it and I feel good about it, I think that's all that really matters. Cause I'm not trying to write for anybody else. Uh, and I want to write what makes me excited and makes me happy. And uh, Yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. Um so if people want to buy your work or or support you or follow you to see what you're up to next, what can they how can they find well, you? Well, if you partake in Instagram, I am on Instagram. Uh if you at marina.benzon and I'll spell that for you. It's m a r i n n a dot b e n z o n. My first name's a little weird. My parents thought they were being creative by throwing in an extra n. That's why I had to spell it. Um, so you can find me on Instagram, see what I'm doing. I love sort of talking to anybody, uh, just because I haven't been able to. So if you want to like shoot me a message, if you want to like connect, feel free to, or you want to just take a look at what I'm doing on my Instagram for sure. Uh, you could also look at my website www.marinabenzon.com. But if you want to purchase my book, you can go to perennialpress.com and uh, click on the store button. And there you go. You'll find me right there. Uh, Millennial Dog Eater by Marina Benzon. It's this little piffy little chat book that's mainly like art deco looking. So support Marina's work. <laughs> Buy that book. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to Influx Collective the podcast walking amongst the rubble undocu queer pride to get updates on our upcoming episodes you can follow us on instagram facebook or join our email list at influxcollective.org